The focus of the book of Acts now turns back to Peter. We've been focused on Paul for a little while. You remember that the church begins in Jerusalem and there's some opposition right away. Paul begins some of that opposition. And you remember that, that tens of thousands of Jewish people get saved in Jerusalem and they're kind of content to stay there until there's this intense persecution that starts with Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And then there are others who die for their faith and even some being compelled to blaspheme. And then Paul, on his way to Damascus, ends up getting saved and he starts to interact with the Christians who are in Damascus. And then he starts to debate the Jewish people who are in Damascus and they want to kill him. They remove him from the city. He goes to Arabia for three years. He comes back to Jerusalem, finally meets with the apostles and immediately begins to debate the Hellenists. So the Hellenists were Greek culture Jews. There were also Hebraic Jews that kept the Hebrew culture and didn't take the broader culture of the, the Hellenistic culture. And so he begins to debate with the Hellenistic Jews, which are the same people responsible for killing Stephen. And now they want to kill Paul. And so finally, they send Paul away. They take him out and they send him back to Tarsus. Now, this is the very next verse that we have after Paul has been sent away. When Paul is an enemy of the church, church has problems. When Paul joins the church, church has problems. There just seems to be problems with Paul around. 9.31, Acts 9.31 says this. Then the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So God sent Paul away to have him finish com completing what God needed to do inside of Paul to use him and will be reintroduced to him later on. But here for the church, they needed a quiet time. They needed a time of comfort. They needed to just be able to go and do the work that God's called us to do. This is just like our lives. There are seasons in our lives. Sometimes there is great turmoil. And sometimes God knows, I just need a break now. I need some, some time of comfort. I need to be able to grow in what God has for me. I don't know what season you're in, but if you need this season of comfort, I hope that God brings it into your life. Now, the title of our message is Peter's Miraculous Ministry in the Area of Joppa. Because during this time of peace, the gospel begins to spread more now. They can move around more. They can go to new places. And so Peter begins to go and visit the churches that are in Judea that have been developed there after the persecution. And he goes down to one of them by the name of uh, Leda that we're going to look at today. Now, I've got a second title for this message, and that is Peter Raises the Dead. Spoiler alert, Peter's going to raise someone from the dead. And we're going to look at that today and see what is really being done. Let's start by looking at our text. Acts 9, we're going to start in verse 32. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, this is the region of Judea, that he also came down to the saints who were at Lydda. Now Lydda is halfway between Joppa and Jerusalem. Joppa is the port city where Jonah ran from the Lord. He went down to Joppa, took a boat to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction from the Ninevites that he was called to go to. And he's going to eventually go to Joppa. From Joppa, he's going to go to Caesarea Maritime or Caesarea by the sea. The thing about this is, this is, this is Pilate's headquarters. Uh, Caesarea by the sea is a Roman city. It is not a Jewish city. And it is full of Gentiles. The whole region of the Mediterranean coast from the area of Joppa 
all the way to Caesarea Philippi is an absolutely gorgeous area. It's beautiful. It's the area of Netanya today. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, uh, you, will, you can surf along it. You can uh, sail all along it. It's a beautiful, gorgeous area. There were many Gentiles in this area, and God is about to reach out to the Gentiles. And so coming down to the area of re, uh, this area of Leda, which today would be the region where Ben-Gurion Airport is, it says in verse 32, came to pass, he went through all the countries, and he also came down to the saints who dwelled in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. Here's the result of this miracle. So all who dwelt in Leda of Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So this man that had been bedridden for eight years was healed by Peter through Christ and immediately all of the people of the region give their lives to Christ. Why? Because they're ready for it. Because they've heard of the miracles that have been, have been happening in Jerusalem. People have spread telling them the accounts of what had happened. And Peter has become known as a miracle worker. You remember that they were bringing people out on their beds, laying them so the, the shadow of Peter could fall upon them. We talked about this being unusual miracles. We don't know if anybody was healed. It doesn't say that. All we know is that people believed enough, probably because by faith, and God was doing miraculous signs. Now, this little account in this little town where people give their lives to Christ reveal to us why God uses miracles. The Bible says that miracles, signs, and wonders are used by him to point to other things. When you see a sign, this miracle would be a sign, a sign isn't there for the sign itself. When, you, when you're driving down, when you're driving between here and Phoenix and you see signs by the road, some of them say Coca-Cola, some of them say such and such law firm, they aren't there so that you can admire the signs. You don't go, well, that's a fine looking couple on that lawyer's sign. <laughs> Boy, look at that Coke, that looks really refreshing. It reminds me I need a drink of water. That's not why the signs are there. They're giving, they're, they're purchasing the signs to be able to point to something else because they want to get into your pocketbook and have you use whatever it is that they have to be able to do it. When you're driving down an area and it has a yellow work sign or a yellow sign that the, that the state has put up. Again, those signs aren't put there because of the fantastic artwork that's on those signs. Because quite frankly, they're not that great. However, they're there to tell you something. They're pointing to something else. A few years ago, I was going from here to Reserve, New Mexico. And I decided rather than going through, you know, uh, uh, down through uh, Deming, that I would go up through Safford and go up into the back way, just kind of a scenic route. When I got right into New Mexico, now this is fairly far south in New Mexico. And as I got into New Mexico, as soon as we crossed over, there was a sign of an elk. Now, it wasn't a particularly good drawing of an elk, but it was unmistakably an elk. And what I said was, I had no idea there were elk this far south in New Mexico. I was clueless. What I found out is that there's a lot of elk that far down and people were hitting them on the road. So they give you the sign so that you can make your adjustment so you don't run into them. So you can be watching out for them and one doesn't jump out in front of you. And you're like, ah, an elk where I thought there were no elk and you hit it. So God uses signs to show us something else. 
Now, we talked about miracles, and we talked about this some early on in the book of Acts. We did a study called Miracles in the Early Church and the Book of Acts. And we talked about why God used signs. And there are signs clustered. There, there are several clusters of signs in the Bible. You have a lot of miracles happening around the time of Moses. Because God was giving the law through Moses. And so God gave the signs of miracles to point to the law that would come. Then you have miracles around Elijah and Elisha. God was giving a sign for the prophets that God would want us to give attention to. And then there's the miracles that attested to Jesus as the Messiah. This was foretold in the Old Testament. We're told that the Messiah would be a miracle worker. So when Jesus was doing the signs, people were seeing and questioning whether or not he was the Messiah because of the passages that talked about his miracles. In fact, remember when John the Baptist came to Jesus, sent his disciples saying, are you the one or should we look for another? You remember that Jesus said, go and tell him the blind receive the sight, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them. When they took that news to John, because John knew the Old Testament, that these kind of signs would attest to the Messiah that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, the last group of, of miracles that we have is in the book of Acts. Because he's giving the writings through the apostles. We study the apostles' doctrine in the New Testament. And so the New Testament was written either by apostles or people that were influenced by the apostles. And so God gave these miracles. Now, some people may read something like this and go, I don't know that I can believe that. In fact, not only some people do it, there are people who do it. But here's the thing. There are still miracles happening today. They don't happen in groups. God's trying to do something different with the signs of miracles today. But there are still miracles happening today. In fact, there's quite a few of them. There's a two-volume scholarly work by Dr. Craig Keener called Miracles. It's a footnoted work where he has gone in and looked at the evidence of claims of miraculous healings. He talks to the doctors. He talks to the families. He talks to those who, are, who have been healed. And he gives the details of their healing. And it is pretty miraculous. Now, I don't know. I have his two-volume set and I haven't read all the way through it. Because scholarly work is, not, is the kind of stuff you read before you go to bed at night. It's good stuff, but it's scholarly. And he has a, a, a book called Miracles Today, which he tells the accounts and gives the evidence for miracles that are happening today. When I read Miracles Today, I have a friend of mine who was a retired urologist. And I asked him if he ever saw anything in his practice that he couldn't explain as a doctor. And he said, yes, of course. Those things, these things happen. That's what's his phrase. These things happen. So if you could talk to a random doctor and then see these accounts of miracles, then we know miracles are taking place today, just not at the rate that they were when the law was given to attest to the prophets, to attest to the Messiah, to attest to the New Testament. Now, there's another book that I suggest, and this is by Lee Strobel called A Case for Miracles. Lee Strobel was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he's taken his journalistic skills and he's gone to investigate these, these claims of miracles, giving the evidences of whether or not these miracles are true. Again, it is, you know what it is? It's faith building. When you read about these miracles that are around, why would God do miracles like this so that we could read and learn of them? Same thing. They're a sign. If God's doing miracles today, maybe not a lot of them, but God's doing miracles, then that would point to the miracles that are in the Bible that, and, and then it would point to what they're pointing to. 
So God's giving us signs to point to the signs to point to the things that the signs were meant to talk about. So what happened with them? All those who, verse 35, all who dwelt in the region of Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now this is very powerful. When it says all, now I don't know that all always has to mean all, but it certainly can't mean a few. It has got to mean the vast majority. The vast majority in this region, when they saw this man who they knew was paralyzed for eight years, gave their lives to Christ. Now news began to spread. This also reminds me of the miracle that Jesus did in Capernaum. You remember that Jesus healed a paralyzed man early on in his ministry. And it was a miracle that pointed to something else. It was a sign that pointed to something else. The four friends came to a house where Jesus was teaching. It was crowded. He, they couldn't get in. So they tore off the roof and they lowered the, the paralytic down before Jesus. Which couldn't have been fun for the paralytic. I wonder how many times the paralytic said, don't drop me. I'm serious. Don't drop me. Don't drop me. And if you had friends like most of us had friends, they messed with them a little bit. Oops. Oh, sorry. Were you okay? And they lowered him down before Jesus. And Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven you. They obviously didn't lower him down through the ceiling to have his sins forgiven. And then Jesus said, so that you would know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say unto you, pick up your bed and walk. And he picked up his bed and he left. This is a perfect example of how miracles are used. He wanted to show that the Son of Man had the power to forgive sins, and so he used a miracle to point to the sign that he is a forgiver. That if you're here today, and you have guilt, and you have shame, and you know that you're not able to stand before God because of the things that you've done, you know that your sins can be forgiven because of the work that Jesus did. Now, we move down to the area of Joppa, where news of what he did with the paralyzed man gets to Joppa. As I said, Joppa is halfway, uh, Lydda is halfway between Jerusalem and Joppa, and the same distance away is, is uh, Caesarea by the sea. That's where Peter's going to end up in chapter 10. He's kind of on his way. But he gets taken to this next place, it says in verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Now that's her Hebrew name, or Aramaic, which is translated Dorcas. That's her Greek name. I like her Hebrew name a lot better than her Greek name. <laughs> Dorcas would not be a good name to grow up with now. You can imagine in elementary school, your name is Dorcas, not a good name. So we'll call her Tabitha the rest of the time because that's a good name. It says this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So she helped people. She came alongside of people. We learn that she made garments. Maybe she ministered to the widows by providing clothes to the widows. But she did a lot of good works. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. A lot of times when someone dies, it seems senseless to us. We can't see any reason for it. We ask God why. When it happens to someone close to us, we ask God why as well. Many of you guys here know that in 2011... My late wife, Lisa, was diagnosed with lung cancer. We didn't know what stage it was. It took a few weeks before we found out, it, got, it kept getting worse and worse, that it was stage four. We believed that God could heal her. We believed that God was going to heal her. I could tell you what was going on in my mind. I thought, what more glory could you bring to your name, God, than to heal the wife of a pastor? 
And then we get the news that she was healed of stage four cancer. And I really thought she was going to be healed. And she came to the point where she realized that she was not going to be healed. And she said to me about three weeks before she died, I don't think God's going to heal me. I hadn't come to that place yet. I said, no, God's going God's to heal you. But sure enough, God took her home. But I've got to tell you, watching someone with a deep relationship with Christ go from this world into eternity, seeing her turn or her attention to her friends and family. She took the saying before she died. She wouldn't say goodbye to people. She would say, I'll see you around the corner. I'll see you around, which was her way of saying, I'll see you in heaven. I'll see you around the corner. I had not, I realize now when I look back at that year and several months that she knew that she had lung cancer and realized that a lot of that was grieving. I can see that now as grieving. But I'm the typical guy. I'm, I'm handling things. I'm looking for the best doctors. I'm trying to get the best help. I'm looking for the latest uh, uh, science on the issues. I'm doing what I can do. And then all of a sudden she passes away. And now I'm hit with grief and asking God, why? Why would you take her? Why would you take her when there's so many things that she was doing and so effective in ministry in so many ways? But God had his purposes and God had his plan. And God has his purpose and God has his plan for Dorcas and her being removed, or Tabitha, for her being removed, for taking her life. And so then it says, when, when they had washed her, which would be the job of the women, the women would wash up the bodies and, they would put, and then they put her in the upper room. They laid her in an upper room. On the bottom of the house would be the living quarters. The upper room was a place you'd gather for meals. You were able to come together. And since uh, Leda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there because Peter was known as a miracle worker, they sent to him, imploring him to not delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went to them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room. All of the widows stood weeping. This is why we think that she made garments for widows. In their day, if you lost your husband, you were thrown into poverty because the husbands were the ones who were out making the money. And so you just had no one to take care of you. If you didn't have any children or anyone who could take care of you. And that's why the early church took care of the widows so much. It's why James says in the book of James, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to take care of widows and orphans. So it seems to be that this was her ministry. All of the widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. This is typically what you see when people are grieving. I've had the privilege of doing funerals, even seeing people go to be with the Lord, but of doing funerals. And when I'm doing someone's funeral and I don't know them very well, I find it interesting that oftentimes after talking to the family, that I think I really wish I would have gotten an opportunity to know them better. I can't tell you how many times I've thought that. But as the family gets together and I say, I didn't know them well, I'm doing their funeral, I want to know, tell me about them. And they start telling their stories about them. You know what really stands out to me? That often the things that they tell about, and those of you who lost people close to you know this is true, they start talking about the quirks, the little quirky things that they had. And then one person will tell a story, and then another person will go, oh yeah, I remember. And the next thing you know, there's tears but there's also laughter. It's a process of healing and realizing that relationships are more than just what we have here. They're working in our lives now and they will work in our lives in the future. 
So he comes and there all the widows are up there and they're, they're sharing and showing the different things that Tabitha had um, done. And Peter put them all out. So he comes up and he says to all these widows, go, get out of here. Which reminds me of Jesus's miracle in Capernaum. The paralyzed man was healed in Capernaum. Now in Capernaum, Jesus goes, I think they go in the storm across the sea and they make their way back and they run into Jairus, who is a, one of the chief um, uh, leaders in the synagogue. And his daughter is sick. And he comes to Jesus, says, come heal my daughter. And while they're going, a woman reaches out of the crowd. They're pressing against Jesus. She touches his hem of his garment by faith, saying, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She's healed. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the, the crowds are thronging him, it says. So the disciples were like, everybody? Everybody's touching you? And he goes, no, power has gone out from me. And so then she comes forward. She had a flow of blood for 12 years and God healed her by her reaching out and touching the Messiah. Again, a sign that if we reach out to Jesus, that we too can have our needs met. That even if it's just touching the hem of his garment. But you can imagine Jairus, whose daughter is sick, and on death's doorstep, when this happens, he's like, let's go. But someone came to him and said, bother the teacher no more, your daughter has died. By the time Jesus gets there, people are weeping and wailing the death of this girl. And Jesus says, don't weep and wail, she's only asleep. And they turn and they jeer him. And he puts them out of the house. Takes in Peter, Peter, James and John. And takes her by the hand. And says, the little girl arise and life comes back into her. Revealing that Jesus has the power over death. So what does Peter do? He puts them out. Just like Jesus had put them out. So Peter puts them out. And then it says, he knelt down and prayed. This is obviously the work of God. This is not the work of Peter. This is God giving miracles to attest to something that's going to happen in chapter 10. And when she, um, uh, excuse me, um, and praying and turning to the body, he said to her, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. Now, all in Lydda had gotten saved, but here many people come to the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. And this sets up the account for how the Gentiles get the gospel. That's chapter 10. We're moving into an entire new region. Now, a couple of things to think about as we look at this text. Number one, I wonder how Tabitha felt. The Bible says to be to, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That means a couple of things. When someone dies, they are no longer in their body. They are absent. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Tabitha was present with the Lord. Now, there's a few things the Bible tells us about eternity. Jesus had said to the thief at the on the cross that said, will you remember me when you come into my, your kingdom? That's a prayer for salvation, by the way. What a simple prayer. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. One thing about heaven is it is paradise. 
Bible also says there's no more sick and no more lame and no more tears and no more sorrow. I love that heaven is described by what's not there. We're about to start a study on heaven after we get done with our study on hell on Wednesday nights. We're going to have a study on heaven. Hopefully it will be as enlightening. I wonder how Tabitha got the news that she had to go back. So Tabitha is in paradise where there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no struggles. People will say to me, why did God make a world where there's pain and suffering and evil? Why didn't he make a world where there's none of that? Well, that's on its way. That's eternity. That's heaven. That's what we're heading to. So I wonder if an angel came to Tabitha and said, I got some bad news for you. <laughs> Peter's praying. And I think the Lord's going to answer her prayer. You're going to have to go back. I, I wonder how it all really worked out. Pastor Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel in the late 1960s, uh, used to say when he was teaching on a passage like this or on Lazarus, he used to say, if I die and you pray for me and I come back, I'm going to be very angry. <laughs> so I'm watching yesterday. I got some time after I get the study done and I'm watching a Calvary Chapel pastor teaching on this passage. I just kind of put it on the background while I was doing something else. So he gets to this point in the study and he says that about himself. If I die and you pray for me, I'm going to be mad at you. I'm like, you stole that from Chuck. At least give him credit at this point. I wonder how many, you know, there's 2,000 Calvary chapels across the United States now. I wonder how many Calvary chapels are stealing all of Chuck's stuff, saying it, you know, for themselves. Nevertheless, the reality is true. Tabitha left that place of paradise and she came back here because God wasn't done with her and he needed a sign to be able to set up for the Gentiles being saved. So God did miracles to get their attention so that Gentiles could come to Christ. Which also makes us think of, what about people who haven't heard? What about people who don't know the gospel? How do they find it? And we're going to see that laid out next in chapter 10 when we get there next week. But let me cover a few things. I want to talk about Jesus' victory over death. Because Jesus rising from the grave, which by the way, is the greatest sign of them all. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest sign. The fact that Jesus was lived, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and the tomb was empty are some of the most attested to things in history. We know he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He lived, and we know that the tomb was empty. And that God is a miraculous God. Why does God do miracles periodically? Why didn't God do a lot of miracles? But why does God do miracles periodically? So we would know that something supernatural is happening. When I have Christians who will tell me, I just have trouble with the resurrection of Jesus, I'll ask them, do you believe in the supernatural? In fact, it's one of my questions I ask even non-believers. I'll ask them whether they believe in the supernatural and, and what they believe about after they die. It's interesting, even from non-believers, how many of them say, well, yeah, I do believe in the supernatural, which of course opens a door to start talking about God because God is in the supernatural realm. But let me just read a couple of verses to you in closing. Um, one of them is 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and through 58. It says, oh, death, where is your sting? That could have been said to these widows that had their clothes, whose eyes were filled with tears now as they embraced Tabitha. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades. Now, this word for Hades in the New Testament is the word for the grave. It's not the word for hell. It sometimes is translated hell. Oh, Hades, where is your victory? 
One day the, gra the grave will not be victorious. We stand by the graves of those that we have loved and we have lost. But one day the victory of the grave will be taken away. Paul went on to write, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There was another resurrection. And Jesus said to Martha, who was upset because Jesus hadn't responded immediately, she said, said to him, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died, which is a bit of an accusation to him. And Jesus said this to her. Jesus, this is John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection. And Jesus said, remove the stone. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. But my question to you is, do you believe this? That he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection. He was resurrected as the firstborn among the resurrection, among, among the resurrected. And we will be resurrected. We who know him and walk with him. But you have to have a real relationship with him. You've got to genuinely know him. Going to church isn't enough. Saying that you're a Christian isn't enough. Remember, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, some will say, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. We secure our eternity through a love relationship with Christ. Being born again and getting to know him. And then there is, we become a child of God. And there is evidence that is undeniable in our lives that we have been committed to Christ completely. Now, three things in closing. And I know that's the second time I said closing. I understand. Three things in closing. We represent Christ wherever we go. Peter went from Jerusalem to the regions of Judea, down into Joppa, and is going to, uh, to Caesarea Maritime. Wherever we go, out of us gushes the torrent, torrents of living water. And God is using us. You say, well, I don't know. I don't see a lot of people saved. But one man waters, the Bible says. Another man plants. And God gives the increase. So God's using us together. God isn't necessarily using one of us to do the planting, the watering, and the increase. One man plants, another man waters, and God gives the increase. Number two, we were paralyzed spiritually. And Jesus forgave our sins and healed our paralysis. Where now spiritually we can interact with him. The Bible says that you had to be born again. And then he said you have to be born of the flesh and of the spirit which means your spirit has to be born. That's what being born again is about. So you are paralyzed spiritually. And also you were dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you had a consciousness and you're alive, but spiritually you were dead and you have to have your spirit brought back to life. These are pictures of those things. Have you ever invited Christ into your life? Have you had your spirit, as the King James Bible puts it, have you had your spirit quickened? Have you been brought to life in him? So that when you die, you will be absent in your body and present with the Lord. I know it's a little morbid to talk about death from the pulpit. But here we are in a passage where someone dies and then is brought back to life, showing victory over death. The thing about death is the statistics are staggering. And I stole this from somebody too, by the way. I don't think it was Pastor Chuck, but I stole it from somebody. 
the statistics on death are staggering. One out of every one person dies. <laughs> Given enough time, we will face our mortality. For some, we feel closer to it. For some, we are further away. But we will one day face the loss of our life. Will you have put your trust in Christ by the time that comes around? Will you put your trust in him today? Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the time that we're able to spend here today talking about these signs that pointed to the work that you're about to do in the Gentiles. The Gentiles are about to come to you, which will be a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament said that you were going to reach out to the Gentiles. And here we are, most of us Gentiles, a, a promise of the foretold passages in the Old Testament. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to know wherever we go, we shine for you. Fill us with your spirit and use us, we pray, in a powerful way to do the work that you've called us to do. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.